0: Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and the servant of all.
1: Good morning, MBIC. My name is Jeremy Rhodes, and I work as a cultural navigator in many of the schools in Lancaster. Um, so I'll be reading from Mark this morning, Mark 15, um, before Dustin. In la mañana, oh, excuse me, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about, what about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barnabas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this, at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barnabas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, Then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? The mob roared even louder, Crucify him. So, to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barnabas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Uh... Jeremy gets to work with refugee families in Lancaster and he's fluent in Romania and Spanish and I never know what I'm gonna get when I ask him to read. So maybe why he was playing with me with his Spanish at the beginning. Um, thanks, ma'am. And uh, Jeremy also gets to go on some of our mission trips to Central America and translate for us. So I've depended on uh, Jeremy and, and a couple of us have depended on Jeremy to um, help communicate our words uh, effectively and the best that he can. So we put him on the spot a lot of different times. So thanks, ma'am. Um, I'm Dustin, executive pastor here at Manhunt Brethren in Christ Church. And in the past, uh, I was able to be the, the head lead uh, youth pastor for the high school for 15 years. And one of the joys being a youth pastor is to go on mission trips. Um, we would go uh, both internationally as well as domestically. And what I enjoyed about trips is you get to put students in awkward and good situations that are good for them, right? And so you might be in a situation where it might be morning, and you might say, hey, who wants to pray for our team today? And you know, let's take turns. Let's all give this a shot. And so I see high school students praying, maybe for the first time over the team, or uh, maybe they feel um, they've done it a bunch of times. But there's a couple common denominators in their prayers, things that just pop up every time. All these different students have prayed. Number one is usually safety. Um, I don't know if they don't trust us youth leaders very much, but they're usually like, Lord, please, we need safety. Okay, um, Unity, like in our group, that we'll get along and help each other out. Um, and then there's always you know, uh, whoever we're serving today, that we would connect well with them, uh, that we would make these really good relationships with these people. And then lastly, there's usually a line that kind of goes like this that we would know you more, God, that we would see you and know you more. And I enjoy, uh, at the end of the day, sometimes we would gather back around and it's fun to ask that question. Did you see Jesus today? Did you you get some clarity around who God is in in life in this world? Like, how did you see that play out? Jesus kind of says this same thing to the disciples. When the, the disciples are saying, like, how do we see and know God? And Jesus says this in John 14, 7. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So we understand God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, through the life and teachings of Jesus. And today he stands trial in front of a Roman governor named Pilate. And so... The the main question that I see Pilate asking over and over again with Jesus is, are you for real? Are you being true? Who are you? It's maybe this position that we find ourselves in. Like, what do we do with Jesus? Are you for real, Jesus? Like, are you for real, for real? True? I can trust you. Your words here are true. What do you do with that? It's a really pivotal question for all of us. A Catholic arch- archbishop who serves in Philadelphia um, put, put that same idea into these words. And, and I've always, I like this archbishop because he's also Native American and uh, comes from a, a really unique tribe in Kansas. And I'm actually going to say it because I wanted to try to say it, but um, it's Potawatomi tribe in Kansas is what he represents. And so he... he in his ministry, has written it into these words. Do we really believe in Jesus Christ or not? That's the central question in our lives. Everything turns on this answer. Because if our Christian faith really grounds and organizes our lives, then we have no reason to fear. And we have every reason to hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we just lift up that simple prayer that we've prayed on many mission trips. It just says, God, allow me to see you more clearly. Help me to know you. And help me to just understand the real and true Jesus today. And then I might take that with me as I leave this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So hopefully you're squeezing the last couple things out of summer. Um, I had the privilege and the honor and the hard work of moving two of my kiddos into college this month. And, um, as I was packing like stuff into my van, like using every square inch, I thought, you know, I think there should be a university in Pennsylvania somewhere that, that grants me an honorary doctorate in minivan packing (laughs) because we did it, we made it and it was tough, but we, but we got it done. And, um, so, that was the last couple things on my bucket list for this summer that I was able to do recently. So, I don't know about you, but you might be just trying to get in a last little bit of summer. So, back to pilot. Okay. And um, I think we have a couple warm weather days ahead of us and then probably the change into fall. Pilot. So, get this pilot stands on this very famous stage. And you might not have realized how famous this stage is. Historically, there's this thing called the Apostles' Creed. And you may have said it in the past, or you may not have said it in the past. Uh, A lot of churches might repeat it every week. And I don't know if you've ever looked at it and said, hey, who's in the Apostles' Creed? But there's five names mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. And you're not going to believe the fifth one. So the first one's God. He's pretty important. You've heard of him. Jesus is in there, Holy Spirit. Mary, mother of Jesus, very important person, and then Pilate gets his name in here. How does this, like, kind of ho-hum, regular governor in the Roman circles get his name in something that we've, like, church has been saying for 1,500 years? That is a great question, and as a pastor, you might be saying, Dustin, why? And my answer is, I don't know why his name is in here. Because literally, there's other phrases that could have fit in here, like um, betrayed by Judas or denied by Peter. But it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So I can't tell you why, but but I want to take you to the moment so that when you say the Apostles' Creed, this one line just means so much more than maybe it did before. Maybe you're able to imagine a couple scenes that helps you just connect to God through that line. So I'm going to keep playing with this, this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, the Apostles' Creed, um, not written by the apostles, by the way, okay? so kind of came out of a formation of people putting sort of some cornerstone ideas that the apostles had taught about 300 years later after Jesus. And then um, the Apostles' Creed that we sort of know and usually say probably came out of France around 700 years after Jesus, and it was probably used as a baptismal creed for people when they were baptized. Now, I've enjoyed creeds over the year. I didn't grow up in our church saying them a whole lot, but I've enjoyed them because they, they, it sort of feels like roots that sort of dig down and like kind of give a foundation to the Christian experience, to the faith. Um, I, I've uh, been, I've seen, or maybe even tried to say them in Spanish when I've been in other countries, and they've said them in Spanish-speaking countries. Uh, I lived in Kenya for a while, and, and either said or solid in Swahili. So all over the world, creeds have sort of bonded together, both Catholic and Protestants, in their Christian faith. Now, just to be a BIC, Brethren in Christ representative, I've really appreciated their teachings through the year, I will say that Brethren and Brethren in Christ— and maybe Mennonites, throw them in there too, have typically been non-creedal people. And I don't know where you stand on that, whether you like creeds or maybe shy away from creeds. But, but you might say, well, why would you shy away from creeds? Well, this, this is sort of the teaching that I've gotten over the years from other Brethren in Christ pastors. Um, and it's just looking at it differently. Um, I would, I've heard it's too much of a shortcut of understanding Let's read and know the whole New Testament together. Number two, these are men's words written down centuries after scriptures were written. Number three, they use modern words and understandings that that might miss the true meaning of the scriptures. And number four, if we really need to push for one creed, if we really need to say a creed together as a body, then let's do the Beatitudes, Because like, when it comes to brethren in Christ, we sort of have have looked at the Beatitudes as sort of just the foundational roots of Christ's ministry. So let's say that together. Let's make that our creed. So maybe over lunch today, if you want to get into whether you really love creeds or you're not sure about creeds, I'll let you discuss that later. But but I do appreciate a lot of things about this Apostles' Creed and this one line. I just want to bring it out to you today. Pilate. Uh, The fifth governor in the Roman province of Judea, uh, 26 AD, his rule started and he served under the emperor, or otherwise known as Caesar, uh, that would be Tiberius. The land Pilate was in charge of um, was not really sought after if you wanted to be in Pilate's position. He kind of got moved to an outpost. And not only just an outpost, but The the Jewish people were sometimes um, not always very happy and pleased with the Roman government. And so there would be some uprisings and rebellions that he had to deal with through the years. And so Pilate, being a young, aspiring Roman leader, was maybe not the happiest camper at this outpost. He was also not really a peacemaker and tended to push people's buttons. Um, During his reign, he invited the Roman soldiers to march through the Jewish temple They were not fans. Um, They put up symbols of Caesar over top of some of the religious symbols. That did not go over well. And he also built, famously, this big aqueduct, 23-mile-long aqueduct that brought fresh water into Jerusalem. You would think that that's a really good thing. However, he raided the temple's offerings in order to pay for it. That did not go over well. So you kind of have this opposition between the Jewish people and Pilate in the way he ruled. So we're going to go into Pilate's discussion with Jesus, but I do want to set it up, and this might feel a little bit like Bible college for the next couple minutes, so hang tight. There's something called the harmony of the Gospels, and it takes everything that happens in the Gospels, and it puts it in chronological order, and then you reference the different Gospels, and you read through it. I did this in preparation for a trip to Israel that was scheduled for March of 2020. Therefore, it did not happen. Okay, so that's still on pause. But I'm all prepared and ready, and I've poured through all the harmony of the Gospels. So it just takes everything and just moves it into order for you across all four Gospels. So I'm going to start with the betrayal and arrest. Then the Jewish phase of uh, what happens to Jesus with the trial uh, happens next. So it goes Jewish phases and then Roman phases is coming. So, what do we know about five things? Number one, we know that there was an arrest. Jesus peacefully surrenders. Peter pulls out his sword, and Jesus is like, Look, Peter, we're not doing it that way. That's not what my kingdom is about. We're not using swords and force. He would later basically say the same thing to Pilate like, Pilate, relax. Like, I'm not coming for thrones. I'm not overtaking earthly governments. That's not what I came to do. Second thing, most would would call these hearings that are happening with the Jewish leaders and with Pilate illegal because they're happening at night. Even the Jewish leaders at that time would have said, trials need to happen during the day, and they need to have witnesses to make sure that they're equitable. So kind of illegal what's going on. Number three, Uh, It's at the high priest house, number three on this list. That's when Jesus meets eye to eye with Peter. Then we have the denial happening. Number four, Jesus is generally quiet, doesn't defend himself, rarely responds to the accusations. And the Jewish accusations are this. They're a little bit different than the Rome's concern. The Jews are concerned with four things. One, he violated the Sabbath because he healed people on the Sabbath. Two, threatened to destroy the Jewish temple. Three, practiced sorcery because he did some different things with casting out of demons. And four, claims to be the Messiah. And that's what they were there to put him on trial for. The, the, the head person um, unintendedly prophesied what Jesus was there to do. And so I, I, love, I love this Phrase. uh, It would be number three on here. The second Jewish phase. The person that Jesus is standing in front of had already said, "We need to take Jesus out for the good of the nation." Basically, like for, for to save the people, this one person needs to die. He's tearing us apart. He's going, taking people down the wrong road. He needs to go, and then we'll be restored. Which is like the most ironic phrase in all the Bible because he was right. If you look at it today and say, you're right, Jesus did give up his life so that nations could be saved for the good of people. So that happens connected to the third one on that list. Um, and also the Jewish leaders, they did not have the legal power to crucify. That, that they were not allowed to do execution, capital punishment. Um, that was for the Romans. And so they needed this to go through to Pilate. We're going to get the pilot in a moment, but a couple more things. Jesus was a religious troublemaker for the Jewish leaders at that time. And they could have taken him out on the streets and just stoned him. Okay, we know in early Acts, they basically did that to who? Stephen. I mean, they basically were like, yep. Mob rule, you're done. You're taken out on the streets. Stephen was not lucky enough to get all these phases of trials like Jesus did. So why did they play by the rules in Jesus' case? Good question. Two possible answers. Number one, they were afraid of Jesus' followers. And so they really needed Roman's stamp of approval. They needed the force behind the Roman soldiers to just sort of squelch any uprisings if they took Jesus out. And the second is just simply looking at Scripture. Scripture says that Jesus will be lifted up. John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Stephen was thrown down in the streets. Jesus would be lifted high on the cross. So off to the Roman courts we go. One more quick thing about the Old Testament. Have you ever used or heard the word scapegoat? You can study that and say, wow, this comes from like the Jewish practice of sacrifice in the Old Testament. And basically the sins of the people in a camp would be put on top of a goat and it was ushered out of the camp in order to die in the wilderness, take the sins out of the camp. And that's what Jesus is sort of walking out as he would need to be judged and killed outside the camp he would need to go to the hands of the Gentiles. All right, so back to the harmony of the Gospels. Um, The next thing that happens is Judas has remorse and takes his own life. And then we have Jesus in front of Pilate. Then we have a statement in one of the other Gospels where Pilate says, hey, wait, aren't you Galilean? So I'm going to have you go to Herod, sort of kick the can. I'm going to go have you talk to Herod. Maybe he can take care of this whole thing. Herod sends him back. So we have finalized in front of Pilate when Pilate finally sort of, we see him almost give in and be like, all right, like, I'm done with you. You you know, you're going to die now. Uh, I'm going to look ahead to the rest of the the story here uh, with Jesus, just so you have an idea of kind of where I'm coming back to at the end. What happens next? A mockery by the Roman soldiers, number 11, journey to Golgotha, Then the first three hours of crucifixion. Then the last three hours of crucifixion. Witnesses at Jesus' death. Certification of death. The body was taken down. More on that in a moment. Tomb. Tomb watched by women and guarded by soldiers. Tomb visited by the women. Stone rolled away when an earthquake happened. Tomb found empty by the women. And the member Peter and John ran to the tomb. And then Jesus starts to appear to different people. So, you just, you just went to Bible school for, for five minutes there. All right. Quiz coming at the end. What, put them in order. That's all what happens. So, back to Pilate. Okay, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my time. Just Jesus and Pilate. I, I said, why was Pilate mentioned in the Creed? Well, interestingly enough, all four Gospels spend a good chunk of time with Jesus and Pilate. So, it seems like it's going to be it's a really important piece to Jesus' story. Pilate was not concerned with the other charges that the Jews were concerned. As far as the temple and the sorcery, not really concerned. He had one concern. Are you gunning for Caesar's throne? Because if you are in any way, I got to take you out. That's my job. Okay, if I let you go and you have a rebellion that is politically fueled and you're going for that throne, then I'm in trouble. So, so that is like, he's got to save his own skin. He's got to save his position. Are you a threat to Caesar's throne? Jesus is asked, are you king of the Jews? Verse 2. Pilate has this one question. Have you ever had just one question you really want to ask Jesus? Maybe you wrote it down or journaled about it, or maybe it comes back in your head when you pray. There's this one question that Pilate needs to know. Like, is this you? are you the monster that, that these people brought in here and told me that you're you're gonna like uprise and take us over? Are you king of the Jews? Jesus replied, "You have said it, or you have said so, which also would mean, you said it, Pilate. Which is his way of confirming it. If, if we look at the other gospels, it might also mean, Yes, but you don't have to worry. I'm not coming for Caesar's throne. Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, you don't have anything to fear from me. So Jesus and Pilate, these questions, are you for real? Are you a king? Are you guilty of all this stuff? Are you innocent? Who are you for real? Are you, what is the truth? All these questions swirl as we say those words found in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. As you read about Pilate, and maybe if you've read about what his wife's dream was about in one of the other Gospels, she came to him and said, hey, listen, I just had a dream this guy's innocent. He's a straight shooter. I think you need to figure out a way to let him go. While the church leaders in the room told Pilate something completely different. Troublemaker, he needs to be taken out. Do we really believe in Jesus Christ or not, was the quote from earlier. What is the real Jesus? Uh, I was recently traveling and I had a late night conversation with a friend of a friend um, that I had never met before. Uh, He was a little bit younger than me and he works for U.S. intelligence, uh, but he grew up in Lebanon uh, just north of Israel. And so we like I was like, oh, I've got to ask you some questions. Like, and so we kind of got into it about God and Israel. And then we just spent time talking about Jesus. And he was talking about Muhammad because he's Muslim. And he's like, look, I grew up this way. I've liked my faith. This is what it means to me. But this Jesus thing. And so we, we just ended up talking about Jesus for probably an hour. And And it was just this open, honest conversation that was really enjoyable, coming from two totally different perspectives. And at the end of it, I walked away and I was like, you know, we were both like asking that question, who is the real Jesus? Both are just asking, like, I really want to know and understand the real Jesus. So Pilate is having this face-to-face conversation with Jesus, asking that exact question. It's interesting, as we look at the history of the Old Testament, there's this battle between God's prophets, which we would say is speakers of the truth, and then false prophets who lied. And sort of this battle goes back and forth throughout the Old Testament and sort of happening right here in this courtroom in the, under Roman rule. We've got like the, 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 the lies and the false accusations, and then we've got Jesus. And Pilate's like, wait, what is true? He finally makes his decision. He just simply says these four words. I find no fault. Never had Pilate spoken truth more accurately in this moment. And maybe that's why we've included him for the last 1500 years in saying it over and over again. Because he really did speak the truth. I find no fault. This man is without blemish, he's without fault. In my own personal life, um, I carry a wallet and sometimes it goes missing. And I'm I in my house and I look all over the house for my wallet. I look all over. I retrace my steps. I'm like asking my, my kids, if like, oh, you see my wallet, if you see my wallet, why can I not find my wallet? Because it's not there. It's, it's, a, it's on my work. It's on my desk at work. That's why. It's not there. And so Pilate finally is like, I'm looking and looking and looking, and I'm not seeing it. I don't think it's here. Spoken truth more, never spoken truth more accurately in that moment. He doesn't see the guilt, the sin, and the evil that that everyone's saying is in this man. Jesus was offering a completely new way of doing life, of doing justice, of doing integrity, of truth-telling. And I think Pilate is kind of blown away. Still doesn't know what to do with this. Then Mark, he calls out what I think is true about the people in the room. And I think we could probably look in the mirror on this one. So so I really want to call this out. I think there's a lot of truth in this statement. Verse 10, For he, Pilate, realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. It's interesting that Mark points to this cornerstone sin of envy as like this is what started the ball rolling. This is the spring of this rotten river that's happening in these people's lives. Envy is such the root of everything wrong in this room right here. Crowds were growing. People were listening to Jesus and not the religious leaders. They had worked so hard on achieving and keeping their powerful positions, and now people were going out on a hillside and listening to Jesus. They had worked so hard to build these temples. Jesus wasn't even going to them. He was going and teaching in courtyards, in city streets. Who does Jesus think he is? If we pause there and and just take one of those mirror moments in Scripture and And say, okay, if I'm honest, where does envy show up in my life? Because it can be such a cornerstone sin. It can cause so many problems. We can be blind to what it's doing. So I wrote down a few real life examples. I encourage you maybe to fill in the blank today uh, with someone. Just say, you know, maybe envy does pop up in my life here. Or maybe. Maybe I've been kind of blind to this one situation and it's envy. So I encourage you to have that conversation with God and and maybe someone else today. Like, what can you think of? I'm I'm going to give you a couple that I just wrote down. Because envy, I think, um, to really define it, it's not just like, oh, I really wish I had that car or that house or that job. I I think it's way more than that. I think it, it drips with jealousy, it drips with judgment. And you end up like, wanting the worst for the person that has what you want. And there's so much evil wrapped up into those statements. So, so I think envy looks like this. How can they afford a car like that when my car is about to hit 200,000 miles and has been in the garage? How can they afford a vacation like that? Hey, look at these pictures they put up. How did, how did he get a promotion like that? How, did, how does she get a guy like that? Or how does he get a girl like that? Why, why are they so happy? Why does everything seem to go their way? Now, as a pastor, I'll admit, like, it can creep in, right? And be like, hey, like, 12 people showed up to my thing I planned. <laughs> and while that pastor over there has 1,200 showing up at their thing. Like, it can quickly creep in to the point where you become jealous, judgmental, and then sometimes you get holier than that. Well, I wouldn't do it that way because it's not the right way to do it. Like, it can really creep in. Parents, have you ever said or maybe thought, why can't my kid be like that? Sports, I'm talking to students maybe now, okay? Okay. I played soccer, so I I know what this is like. But like, have you ever got a little envious of someone on the team? Why are they getting playing time? Is it because they know the coach better than I do? And don't like, don't tell me that you haven't like maybe wished that they sprained their ankle for three weeks. Because it happens. Like you're like, right? It's hard. Envy creeps in. So let's keep, it, let's keep it personal for just a little bit longer. Keep it 100% here, all right? Business partnerships. Envy ever creep in? Family businesses. Envy creep in? People don't talk to each other for like six months? Okay, we live in Lancaster, so I'm going to say it. Family farms. Envy ever creep in? I've seen it. If, if you read about an assault or a murder, they're often going like to try their best to come up with a motive. And I guarantee you, if you look at that motive, you can usually sort of boil it down and be like, Envy, it's right there, I see it. National events. Envy creeps in. Our political parties sort of do anything to grab control. Envy. Let's go world for a moment. Uh, Let's say there's a, a large, powerful country that invades a smaller neighboring country because the little country has rich oil fields and has these great, successful harbors on the sea. And then there's just a long trail of death and destruction caused by envy. So I think you look personally at your life, I think that Mark wants us to all see the stark difference between the truth found in Jesus and the falsehood found in the church leaders around the room who brought Jesus there because of their envy. And if we look into the mirror, it's just a good time to stop and say, Lord, how is envy misdirecting my efforts? Or has it destroyed a relationship that needs mended. Did Jesus come to confront envy? For sure in this moment as we look at Pilate and we're we're seeing the difference between envy around the room and Jesus being true to himself, to his father, to his cause. Even Pilate saw it. That's that's what that's what baffles me. It's like like this Roman Governor, he might not have ever thought about God and spirituality a day in his life, and all of a sudden he's like, "Wait, like you should go free." And every, I see everyone—they brought you in here because of their envy. Like that's wrong, and what they're saying is not right. So Pilate, he needs to find a way out of this, right? I said, "Now what? Um, what's he do now?" So you know, he comes up with the idea. Okay, we'll give him Barabbas or Jesus. They're obviously going to take Jesus because Barabbas is a troublemaker. He killed someone. There was a riot that he was leading. And so no one likes this guy. And the crowd chose Barabbas. Historians would say that Barabbas' first name was also Jesus. So we have Jesus of Nazareth here, and we have Jesus Barabbas. The crowd did not want the heavenly Jesus returned to them, They wanted the Jesus they could live with, a Jesus that didn't make them feel guilty, a Jesus of this world. Give us the one that's more like ourselves. We don't have any envy for him. Jesus of Nazareth, get rid of him. We don't want his kind around here anymore. So Pilate, to pacify the crowd, released the murderer. He proceeds to humiliate Jesus with, with a robe, with a crown, with, with a terrible whip. And, and the story just keeps getting darker and darker and more evil. It's like this whole big black goo goes across the land until there's darkness and Jesus hanging from a cross. What price did Pilate pay to keep the crowd happy? He gave up justice. He had the power to do justice and he gave it up and he became injustice. Which is so fascinating to me because if you look at the first word Jesus spoke in his ministry, it was, I've come to bring justice. And then Pilate sort of puts the last nail in the coffin with doing injustice, to save his skin. That's the depthness of those words, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. As you read those words, and we're going to say them together here at the end, as you read them, I ask you just to reflect on times that you've been humiliated. No one had your back. Fingers were pointed. You really didn't have a chance. Everything was stacked against you. We were on the, you were on the losing end of injustice. People believed lies that were spread by other people judgments were hurled your way you you became a scapegoat that people piled their problems onto you believing that if you're just gone their life would somehow be better if you've been there then please know that jesus knows if that's the one line you remember as you leave please understand if you've been there that jesus knows because he knows, because he stood right there and took it. Pilate and Jesus, who are you for real? A king? Yes. But not the earthly power grab kind you're thinking of. Who are you for real? Are you guilty? No. are you for real? Truth? Yes. True at the beginning of time? True then? True today? Now what? Pilate has no idea what he's going to do. He lets him go and says, you're going to die. And he washes his hands. And like, as if that's just the end of the story. But we know today that there's much more to the story. Yes, it became completely dark. Evil seemed to prevail. Jesus' head was hanging on the cross. So we could end there. We could end right there. And that could be the end of the story. So Dustin, where's the good news? All right pretty dark and ugly and it is if you read the words and really imagine it it's terrible the good news is god's still working and for a moment when jesus hung on the cross blackness stretched across the land this little ray of light starts to break in it i just imagined this week as i was studying this cracked, dry desert with nothing growing All of a sudden, like the first drop of rain, like hits the soil and you're like, wait, like that's not the end of the story. There's, there's goodness and truth that are going to happen next. And we move toward like, I would say real beauty and wonder as we begin to see God's love just sort of start to unravel itself. People start to really care for one another. There's true compassion. There's beauty in a pretty ugly situation because people are encountering God's presence here on earth. I'm going to read the end of Mark, just a couple verses, that, that for me just really capture the, this beam of light into the darkness or that first drop of rain in a dry, cracked land. I think you'll get my point here as I read it. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling out to Elijah. So, On one hand, there's incredible beauty in this because Jesus is giving everything, nothing more, risk, all the way. I've got nothing. He just gives everything. It's beautiful in this this verse. And then you have people who hear it and say, wait, is he talking to Elijah? Because they're confused. They're misunderstanding Jesus. Which is interesting because he sort of misunderstood his whole ministry life. Even going back to the time that he was a boy and left uh, Joseph and Mary left him in behind in Jerusalem. They said they didn't understand. Or he said that they didn't understand that he had to be about his father's business. You ever felt completely misunderstood? Jesus knows. Even at the very end, people still misunderstood he gave everything. Mark fifteen thirty nine. And when the centurion who facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is, this is good news. This is an amazing image that we have. He was, I just imagine this big burly dude taking his helmet off and being like, oh wait, <laughs> what we just did was wrong. The centurion saw so many people crucified on this spot, probably oversaw the proceedings time and time again to probably at a point where he was even cold to it. And in this moment, something was wrong. There was something so remarkable about Jesus that he said, this shouldn't happen. Mark 15, 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The tearing of the temple veil signified that man and women now had free access to the throne of grace and of mercy. Nothing was in the way anymore. There wasn't, there wasn't that God just dwelled in temples made by man anymore. Remember the woman at the well? And Jesus is like, you know, hey, and they're talking, and she's like, listen, we can't go to Jerusalem. We can't worship your God. Because there's all these rules, and you don't let Samaritans there. And Jesus is like, there's a time that that's going to change, and it does with, with this. That, that, that where she was born in her skin color didn't keep her from God. Uh, even Jesus' crew, uh, we don't know how many times Jesus went to the temple as a boy because it, it was expensive to make the trip, and we understand that they were very poor. So it could have been every other year, it could have been every five years. But, but what I'm saying is, even people's financial situation kept them from God, from the temple. And this, this curtain is torn from top to bottom saying, God is blessing us with the chance of a connection. Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, when I say counsel, I'm talking about the Sanhedrin who just like, took Jesus out, arrested him, and had this illegal trial at night. That's his crew. So he's like in the top 1% of wealth and power in his community. And he comes to Pilate. Okay, you don't just come to Pilate. Okay, you have to have connections to get to Pilate. He's got his connections. He goes to Pilate, and he risks everything. He believes Sanhedrin didn't get it right, hey, I want to take care of Jesus' body. Can I do that? It's this beautiful picture of the care and compassion this man had while he risked everything. I don't know what happened to him, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't invited to the next meeting. So we, we just see him risk everything, his position, his wealth, his privilege, just to take care of a bloody body. And, and it, as we look at it, um, the way to take down a body is you climb up this little ladder behind the body and you, you, you move one arm, you get the head, you move this other arm, you get the feet, and then you literally carry it off the cross. And we know that at the, the time, Pilate's surprised at how quickly Jesus died, and then it, it, it appears that he's taken down very quickly. So no birds came in or anything like that. And so we're talking about fresh, nasty blood at this point. And, and Joseph is like... I'll take it. I don't want to care for Jesus. Luke would go ahead and put Joseph in the company of great leaders like Abraham, Job, and Noah. Joseph of Arimathea, he took broken things and tried to make them right the best that he could. And to end it, we have to visualize the empty tomb because it's part of the life that we breathe as Christians. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he has risen and he is not here. See the place where they laid him. This is the world-changing moment, life-changing news for you and me today. The truth stood before Pilate. Like the the way the truth and the life was right there, and he just didn't know what to do with it. I believe today that truth stands right in front of us today. Super compassionate, wanting to connect with each one of us, being an advocate to the Father for us, offering us total forgiveness of sins, a second chance. So we get to choose. Do we want to receive that? Do we want to be a part of that? Do we want to stand there and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to go out with you. I'm going to be your disciple, and I'm going to go with you, whatever that means. I invite you as you go ahead and stand, and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together, and I I hope that maybe all the lines have a little deeper meaning, but especially the suffered under Pontius Pilate. You have some visualization of just what that meant to the people in the room, the people that brought the lies because of envy, Pilate trying to struggle with that question, who are you for real Jesus? And Jesus offering people a different way to live. Let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church,